but it is necessary now to make a choice, to choose between two admittedly regrettable, but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments. One where you got 20 million people killed, and the other where you got 150 million people killed. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. I will not go down in history as the greatest mass murderer since Adolf Hitler. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in the history books. Hello, listening people. Hello. Hello, Bartek. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking, Ryan Slewinski. How are you? (laughs) I am doing incredibly well. Thank you. Uh, we're here to talk about movies on our movie-related podcast, not our podcast-related movie. Although, spit and polish the movie? Who would play mm. us? Um, I know who plays you. <laughs> There's two options. Yeah, one of the ones which the class I'm teaching keeps calling me because I don't remember my name that I tell them to call me. What do they call you? Mr. Jack Black. <laughs> I tell them... Hey, I tell them, hey, guys, guys, you know the last letter of black K? That's what I'm asking you to call me, Mr. K. But <laughs> okay, Zach. <laughs> Zach. And the other one, yes, Zach Elfnakis. Who plays me? Um, Weird Al from the 90s. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Or, no, Vern Troy is dead. Um. Yeah, Vern Troy is dead. I was going to make a similar joke. I was going to be like, she was somewhere completely off base, where I was just like, and you cast me with LL Cool J. Louise Guzman. Oh, that's a good choice. <laughs> I, uh, him or um, uh, John Leguizamo, if they're both free. <laughs> Get both of them to play me. Yes, if they're- Standing on each other's shoulders, but you have John Leguizamo being the one on the bottom. Because mm-hmm. he's a strong little man. Hmm. So, we're not the John Leguizamo podcast, unfortunately. Judy Dench as well, yeah. No, 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 no. We get her her friend who does her in Love, Death, Repeat, or whatever that movie was called. Love, Wedding, Repeat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where we get that woman who works for Judy Dench all the time, but isn't her. But in that movie, voices the movie, and you think it's Judy Dench, but it isn't actually. It's just some woman who's friends with Judy Dench. <laughs> but we're not talking about Love, Wedding, Repeat. We already did that. We're talking about a movie that came recommended. I believe you recommended this film. Yes, you got it right this week. I did good. I made that talk. Congratulations. 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 <laughs> and the one guy who says it differently. Um, yes, this uh, this is a formatted show in which one week I recommend a film, which is this week. Next week will be a Ryan recommendation, and the week after will be Listening People's recommendation. Wow. Yes. Last week was Listening People, so this week it's me, me, me. So you chose Mamma Mia. Here we go again. <laughs> I, my, like the- my. <laughs> I like Abba a lot, but I've never seen Mamma Mia. Well, that's that's your next pick. Although Rachel- it's a foreign film, right? <laughs> Rachel did show me a clip from it once, though. That was funny. With Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, the film I've picked this week is Practitioner Unusual Affection, or Dr. Strangelove. Say its full title, please. <laughs> Dr. Strangelove, or, colon, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Yep. No, no, do that little gag you did with Dr. Strangelove, but with the rest of it. Good luck. Practitioner unusual affection, rather, semicolon, um, the process in which one such as I 
taught myself to cease my agitation and furthermore appreciate the explosive. Stanley Kubrick's clapping in his grave right now. <laughs> I can hear it. That's what he would have that's what he wanted it to be called. He really wasn't expecting the semicolon. No, no. He wanted it, but that damn Columbia Pictures they just meddled with it. They said it's gotta be in black and white. Also you gotta have a colon, not a semicolon, Kubrick. You're a madman, I tell you, a madman. One day when I remake that title, I'm gonna improve on that and further, because I'm still not proud of that part. Pride's a sin. Yeah. So we're gonna be talking about Doctor Strange Life. If people have not seen the film, watch it, because we're gonna talk about it and spoil it. And it's a film worth watching. It's been around for many a decades, and it is an iconic film. You know it's iconic because The Simpsons has referenced it multitudes of times. And Metal Gear. And Metal Gear, and Metal Gear's reference. <laughs> we can talk about that too. We if can, we, if we, if we like, because I'm forgetting which points it references it, but I know it does. Yep. There's a war room, so we are here spitting and being Polish, talking about Doctor Strange Love. Let's get into histories with this feature film. Bartek, tell us about it because you recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this will be getting into Metal Gear at some point, but. <sighs> <laughs> Because um, there Metal are, Gear. Metal Gear. There are two games in the Metal Gear franchise that very, very obviously reference this film. Um, and that was the. It's from these two games that I first learned about the film, and mm. it kind of got into my head of like, okay, uh, the director of these games, Mr. Hideo Kojima, clearly likes this film and wants people to watch it, so I'll I'll check it out. Mm. Um, and yeah, I first checked it out in two thousand and ten. Went to JB Hi-Fi, bought the DVD, and I watched it. And it's one of the first films I can remember where it was an okay first viewing experience, but then like a day or two later, I kept thinking about the film and became more enthusiastic about it. Um, and it's yet another one of those films that's like, I want to rewatch this again someday with a fresh perspective and, you know, try to enjoy it while watching it. And I hadn't watched it again until last night. 11 years. 11 years. And you know what, Ryan? We're a month and a half away from 2022. It was almost 12. Years a Slave, which has Paul Giamatti. <laughs> yes. Who, by the way, would make a cameo in the Spit and Polish movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. As Luke. As Luke. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I saw this movie yonks ago. I don't remember when I first watched it. I think I said this in our Shining episode, but this is my personal favorite Stanley Kubrick film. Mm-hmm. I like the comedy. I like the characters. I like the filmmaking. I like the ending. I love the ending. Mm. Um, I love how it all comes together. I like the actual pitch of the movie. The plot is really good. Like When it comes to Stanley Kubrick films, I don't think of the plot being a fascinating point, but rather the filmmaking and how it all unfolds. Mm. But the actual plot of Doctor Strange Love is really interesting, wouldn't you agree? Like, from his film's perspectives, usually they're more character centric and atmospheric, but this is really like this general went insane and this thing and this thing, and it just keeps unfolding. Yeah, like very non typical Western storytelling where it's like the plot, how does this relate to this, to this, to this? It almost feels a bit more Eastern where it's like, you know, emotions or. Mm or visuals, or things like that. Yeah, so I've always liked this film. I have uh, love Peter Sellers in the movie. I love George C. Scott in the movie. I love, I can't remember the actor's name, but plays the Russian ambassador. I love him in the movie, too. Mm, yeah. he's, he's very good, <laughs> he's very good. 
So I've always liked it, and I've watched it many a times. Uh, I remember when I first moved down here to Melbourne, and I eventually got a sound system, and the first movie I watched to test out my sound system was Dr. Strangelove. Oh, cool. Because I just had it there, and it was like, I can really hear the machine gun firing now. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've always had a deep, deep affection for this movie, and it's great because it's an anomaly, it feels like, because when you think of Stanley Kubrick, the filmmaker, you don't think wacky Peter Sellers comedy filmmaker. <laughs> you don't think that. You think brooding. Every single shot is a painting. 147 takes to get it right. Mm. Yeah, but then you read the behind the scenes of this movie and he's like laughing and tears rolling down his face from the laughter and giggling. and He's tricking George C. Scott. To give a weird performance. <laughs> tricking him and beating him in chess. Beating him in chess. But then uh, George C. Scott's a fascinating man. <laughs> Can I tell you a piece of trivia I learned about George C. Scott? In his film Patton, mm-hmm. the famous film, he delayed filming for a day because he refused to leave a ping pong match because he was versing the world champion of ping pong. And he wanted to see if he could beat him at least at least once. <laughs> that's a fact. That's a fact. That's a fact. I don't know much about him, but I'm seeing now that he's very much a sportsman. <laughs> or intense. Yeah. Not necessarily a good sportsman. You know, but, he's, mm. you know what he is? Maybe. Hmm? Not a winner. Not- <laughs> Are you telling me that he didn't beat the ping pong champion? He did not, and he did not beat Kubrick. <laughs> Um, although he did win an Academy Award, he was the first actor to ever refuse said Academy Award because you want to know why? He was too busy watching a hockey game. <laughs> I was going to ask him, was, was he participating in a sport? But it was, he was spectating a sport. <laughs> I could imagine him on the spectating like, come on, I won an Oscar for this. <laughs> He's sitting down at a bar telling someone about it and it's uh, Marlon Brando. Are you surprised to hear that in the end of his life, he had multiple heart attacks due to anger and stress? <laughs> Are you surprised? I think not. <laughs> <laughs> so that's enough George C. Scott facts. Uh, could you please inform us about the Metal Gear connection? Because it's just looming over us. So sure. what are the examples? What are the specific moments? So for people that don't know, um, Metal Gear, you can kind of divide the- Metal Gear. Metal Gear. The two, the, you can divide the series into kind of two separate uh, er- eras. One of them being, you know, the, the 20th century, which focuses on like the Cold War. Um, and then you got like the stuff in the 2000s, which is always like near future kind of stuff. Um, in terms of the- Still has Russians in it though. Still has Russians are very prominent throughout the entire thing. Those damn, <laughs> those damn Ruskies. Um, and so, but specifically, this is obviously talking about the, the Cold War era. The, the third game, Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater is set in 1964, the year that this film came out. And one of the fun little things that that game does is when you save the game, the person who saves the game for you- after you do save the game, will recommend you a film from that time. And one of them was Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And, like, the title confuses Snake. It's like, excuse me, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> um, she's And she doesn't, the, the the saving person doesn't tell you too much about the film, other than it's about a, you know, paranoid warmonger who sets off uh, a, doomsday a doomsday machine, and the lead actor plays three different roles. And once you get past all the dark stuff, it is rather funny. And that's about all that's said there. Um, and then the sequel to that game, which you haven't played, Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, you might be able to tell from the title with peace in the name <laughs> that nuclear deterrence is like the key word of the game. It's all about nuclear deterrence. And the main giant robot threat of that game is a giant Metal Gear machine 
that's nuclear armed and it will automatically you know launch a nuke if someone aims a nuke at it mm-hmm. and obviously the person behind it is a villain who oh. has a dastardly plot about it what is it not a good guy not a good guy hot coldman no 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 <laughs> um and there is, is he related to die hard man <laughs> and uh i don't know if you know about this or ezra goodman <laughs> Or Doug Badman. Um, and I don't know if you know this about the game, but there is literally a character in the game called Dr. Strangelove. It's a British scientist woman with sunglasses. In a wheelchair? With a- no, no, no. Her love interest is in a wheelchair. Ah. Um, and obviously she worked on this the AI that pilots this machine, things like that. Um, and she goes on to become Otacon's mum, actually. So... <laughs> She's t- she's tied into right, what you know. Right, I've heard enough. I've heard enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But basically, Jesus she. Jesus Christ. But like I said, she's this you know female character in this game set in the seventies with sunglasses. <laughs> who really stands? There's a lot of things about her that stands out in this game. Let's Where does the monkey but... factor in? <laughs> no, no, no. Snake versus monkey was Metal Gear Solid Three. No, isn't there a monkey in Metal Gear Four? Metal Gear Solid Four. Oh, right, yeah. The Peace Walker. That's his, Metal Gear His name 4. is his name is Little Grey. And how does he factor into the Doctor Strange <laughs> love comparison? Um. Well, later on, is he Mandrake? <laughs> about about eight, nine, zero, four, about forty years after Peace Walker, um, <laughs> a character named Raiden exists as a cyborg ninja, and his motion capture artist amused Hideo Kojima because he could do a monkey impression. So he said, I'm going to put a monkey in the game and you're going to be the motion capture artist. This reminds it. me of Dennis Hopper. Ooh, a monkey. <laughs> monkey. <laughs> monkey. So That was Kojima. Doctor Strange love to get to the actual film. I like it, still like it, still enjoyed it. But how about you? It's been 11 years, almost 12 years a slave, almost 12 years. Slaving away at life you, without watching it again. You could have made Boyhood in this interim. So I could have made a boy. Yeah, yeah, but you could have made the film Boyhood. Yeah, in this time. So, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I had a really good viewing experience. I actually laughed multiple times during watching. It was fun. Any particular standout or early laugh, perhaps? I think every time there was a phone call, <laughs> like even when you could, even the first one with the woman talking to Freddie over the phone, like <laughs> that one got me. But obviously, the next two, Dimitri, the, the Dimitri calls the. The one that British Peter Sellers calls Mandrake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mandrake to the the operator. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have enough coins. This this <laughs> this film has great phone calls. Just a lot of comedy going on there. Oh, it does phone calls real well. Yeah, I had a good laugh laughter experience as well. I I really appreciated uh, the 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 plot of the movie. I was really taking in how the film did really nice setups so that the tragic tragic ending made sense mm. like with the plane with the bomber how they set up all of the stuff before we actually get told in an exposition like the code we get set up with the code we get set up with the code having been destroyed on the console so we know that they can't get the code either way and now they're flying low and oh we're knowing that they're running out of fuel so it adds to the comedy of them being like Search these two sectors, Dimitri, you'll be bound to win. It's like, yeah. no, you won't, because they don't have enough fuel to get to there. And we know that they don't have enough fuel to get to there. And they're figuring out where to go next, and we know it won't be there. Definitely in terms of visual memory, I remember that the film was, you know, three main locations. Mm-hmm. But I didn't remember fully how they all tied together. So re-watching it and seeing how really closely they all did tie together and set up things in each story, paid off in another... It was really tightly woven, and it created some really great effects. Like, with the whole bomber 
plot, which is the only one that doesn't have Peter Sellers in it, unfortunately. It was supposed to. It was supposed to, but... But hey, we got Slim Pickens <laughs> instead, and he was great. Yeah. That one, it almost feels like if you only watch those scenes, it's like a movie where it's like, yeah, cheer for them, they're gonna do the mission, we have to... <laughs> Not kill humanity. We, <laughs> we have to hope that they succeed, and they, they, it hits all of those notes, but with the context of all of the other, the other two parts mm. of the film... It's them trying really hard to do the thing that they really want to stop because it's going to kill everyone in the world. One of the interesting things about the bomber side of the plot, if we want to talk about that, Mm -hmm. is Slim Pickens. I read some trivia. I tried not to read all of it because there's so much of it, and I know a good portion, but... uh, Slim Pickens was last-minute decision choice because he Peter Sellers couldn't do a Texan accent and also broke a hip or a foot. Ankle, I think. They they change around that fact on IMDb a couple of times. So, um... He broke something, couldn't do it. They wanted to get one or two other people. They didn't want to do it. One of them objected to the script's politics and blah, blah, blah. Slim Pickens like, I'll do it. And uh, nobody told him it was a comedy. Yeah. So he played it like a drama. And it adds because the bomber plot, there's... The jokes are very, very, very dry in comparison to the rest of them. Like... Obviously, him riding the the bomb and yeehaw, all that, that's funny and iconic. That's probably the most iconic visual from the movie. Mm. But there's other little jokes like the auto-destruct button self-destructed. That was very funny. I had a good laugh at that. (laughs) Um, But uh, So they can't even do the auto-destruct. I love that. But a lot of it is very serious and dry and like you said like this feels like a real that section in particular feels like a real movie like if you're following these people they're the heroes and they're having to dodge mm. and weave and the russians and yeah. they're having to destroy the thing in terms of, yeah none ter- of them play it like a comedy none of them they all play it serious while in the other stories george a. scott's being forced to ham it up I'm like i have to say that he's being usually, tricked to ham it up <laughs> usually when we do this is like oh that actor willem dafoe he really hammed it up as green goblin but no no no, no. it's like he was tricked into hamming it up. Yeah, but he thought that that was just fun time, play time, but <laughs> essentially, yeah. He wa- For anyone not in the know, he wanted to play it a lot more seriously, and Stanley Kubrick said, okay, we'll do that. But first, let's do some silly takes just to practice. We won- These won't get used in the film. They got used in the film. And George C. Scott was very furious, but also he says it's one of his favourite performances he ever did in his career. So I guess it's a payoff, but he also refused to ever work with Stanley Kubrick again. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of stories. Slim Pickens also refused to work with Stanley Kubrick again. He was oh, supposed really? to be uh, Skateman Crothers. He was originally that choice in uh, The, the Shining. Shining. Oh, okay. He's like, I'm not doing those repeated fucking takes. And in all fairness, he was right, because it's a, it's The Shining that has the 147 takes, I believe, right? Maybe. That's the one with the most, like, crazy... And also, behind the scenes-wise, that's, like, the most fucking nightmarish one to have been working on. Unless you're Skateman Crothers, who had a great time! <laughs> like, I love the behind the scenes of The Shining, and every time it comes to Skateman Crothers, he's, like, crying with tears of joy of what a joyous experience he had, how he really connected with the cast and crew, and he had a really good time, and this really added to my acting career. I, I would never have a bread. It's like, everyone else is like, I'm miserable and dying. I'm Shelley Duvall and I'm traumatized. <laughs> while the while Doctor Strangelove, yeah, has lots of behind the scenes we could talk about. George C. Scott tricked into it, but with the bomber plot, it's the least interesting out of the three because it isn't as overtly funny. But I appreciate it because it is the the anchor of the plot, the narrative. Because this film is tightly woven, as you said, it's it's very. Uh, clockwork all the gears go into place hmm. but you need that one yeah to really be you need one of them to really sell it and they use the bomber plot for it and it works 
Yeah, isolation is a big word you can use for that one, because not only does it feel so different to the other two sections of the film, the whole conflict is that they cannot get in contact with them. They're essentially an isolated airship, I almost said airship again, (sighs) aircraft flying, you know, going to do a mission. Can't tell them to stop. It's... Yeah, no one can stop them because they're yeah. flying too low. Yeah, and like you said, when we get to a lot of the later war room scenes, there's just this kind of sense of defeat and agitation of like, look, I don't know, Dimitri, you're just going to have to deal with it. You know, <laughs> we're all in this together. We really want you to succeed. I know they're our boys, but you need to shoot them down. I'm sorry, Dimitri, that they fly low. That, that, that's how we taught them. <laughs> I'm sorry that they're tricking you and your, and your radar and outsmarting you. That's what we teach them to do, Dimitri. <laughs> Dimitri. <laughs> the bomber plot has James Earl Jones' first major acting role in a movie, I do believe is I think so. the credit. Uh, Stanley Kubrick saw him in a production of Merchant of Venice with George C. Scott. So two birds, mm. one stone. Uh, I, I, I don't know who he would have been in that. I'm trying to think who James Earl Jones would be in the Merchant of Venice. Would He wouldn't be Shylock. I would imagine that would be George C. Scott. Mm. But I'll have to ask James Earl Jones when I see him next. <laughs> so, uh, James Earl Jones, what did you think of seeing that old familiar... Like, someone who, to us, is a standard of acting. This is, like, James Earl Jones, one of the most famous African-American actors of all time. He was the voice of our childhood with Mufasa and so on and so And now forth. he's the voice of a new childhood. Mufasa. Oh, <laughs> Mufasa. And also, he's on The Simpsons as Bleeding Gums Murphy. He was on some sort of... Like space thing with a guy in a helmet. Oh yeah. He had a line that like something oh, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was yeah. breathing. Rogue One, of course. Rogue, yeah, that's <laughs> that it. my favorite film of his. Mm. Rogue One. I love the elderly robot man. I love that guy. <laughs> the elderly robot man. <laughs> I loved him. Was he bleeding gums, Murphy? Yeah. Okay. When it comes to Simpsons, I just know that he was in all three segments of the first Treehouse of Horror. Mm-hmm. He was Bleeding Gums Murphy, and then when he died, spoiler alert, Bleeding Gums Murphy dies, he appears as a cloud to Lisa, and then and <laughs> then course. Mufasa appears as a cloud, and then the voice of CNN and blah, 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 <laughs> just keeps doing that, like all of his iconic That's movies. right. I remember so, that. Yeah. He's like, hey, guys, come on. <laughs> Try to do a real thing here. So that was funny, but um, it was great to see him here. And it was funny because I always remembered he's in the movie, but he's actually in the movie quite a bit. He doesn't get a lot to do, like, you know, he he doesn't get a strongly Mm. defined character. But although they don't have lots of lines of dialogue, I felt like I really got to know the crew of that bomber. Who did what and who was where. It was a very, yeah, claustrophobic set that they were on, and you, it mm. did feel kind of intimate. I, I, As much as we didn't like this film, there was that film we did on the mystery box that was the one where they were trapped in the submarine. Uh, deep Impact? Uh, deep, oh, no. re- deep, deep Rescue? Re- deep, re- deep Rescue. Deep Rescue. I remember I said Not that- Not Deep Rising. <laughs> I remember that was one of the only compliments I gave the film. It's like, oh, you kind of got familiar with the set, but th- this one was a much better film that had that. How would it have been if this was like that film, Deep Rescue, mm-hmm. in which- <laughs> feel like you know i'm gonna go with this if james old jones was really angry because his ears hadn't gone pop <laughs> oh i thought you were gonna say jump scare eagle or something how would it have been if the thrust of this was <laughs> the ears hadn't gone pop pop and they were really mad and about they it? really wanted to protect the something mario i don't know oh the, in the in deep rescue it was protect the satellite mm-hmm. in this one it's protect the two bombs which you have to handle with care yeah the dear dear john bombs 
but yeah, I like the bomber plot because it is a serious one out of him, and you need it because it is the overwhelming thing of these guys are going to drop a bomb and kill humanity as we know it, basically. Yeah, it's basically if these guys succeed, then the other two plots, or the, the war room plot has failed. Mm-hmm. If they fail, then the war room plot succeeds. So it's this weird thing of like, we're following two different plots. We kind of want both to succeed in a weird way. Mm-hmm. With this one, it's like bad stakes if they succeed, but we kind of like them. It's, and this mm-hmm. one, you know, it's funny and they're dealing with something very serious. So Peter Sellers is in the movie a lot. And we both like Peter Sellers. We've talked about the Pink Panther. Mm. We're not as familiar with all of his work, but we know of Peter yeah. Sellers. Yeah, he's a guy that I haven't seen in much, but I've really liked him in all I have seen him in. Yeah, and he's very good at playing characters. Yeah, for sure. Caricatures, character work. This he plays three of them, mm-hmm. and uh, the titular character he plays. Uh, but let's talk about Mandrake and that side of the story. The 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 uh, insane General Ripper. Yeah. I think on this watch, he was my favorite. The the Mandrake out of the P- Peter Sellers performances. I love the president. He's always been my favorite. The president has always been my favorite. And then Strange Love and then Mandrake. But this time around, I loved Mandrake. I was sitting there going, I would play Mandrake. That was one I would play. <laughs> the moment where I lost it with Mandrake, and I always lose it because... Peter Sellers famously is improvising in this movie. Yeah. Which is on, which is unusual, because you think of P, uh, Stanley Kubrick, meticulous, I need everything the way I need, but he would let people improvise. Do you know if the the Dimitri phone calls were improvised? Because those were- I think they were. Because those were really, like, the lines were really meticulous. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, Peter Sellers, just that good. If those were improvised, legend. then fucking the best improvisation probably ever. But- I know Dr. Strangelove's stuff is improvised. <laughs> uh, but, but Mandrake, when he says, oh- Jack, I can't help you. The the string in my leg has snapped. <laughs> you can see, if you look, that Peter Sellers is recognizing how silly this is, pulling this out of his ass as an improviser, but he just leans on it. He's, yeah, the Mandrake character has this very uh, com- light sensibility about him where he tries to lighten the mood of everything, and it's just really funny to see next to this... Insane, serious, general. Insane and serious. Those, those are the two words we really have to emphasize, because he is a paranoid psychotic, but he's very subdued in his performance. He's just, he delivers his lines straight, mm. and it's the seriousness and sincerity that he delivers that is the mania that he shows. And that's what makes it funnier, when yeah. he says bodily fluids and sacred fluids, and I figured it out during the act of making love. Yeah. <laughs> it all coalesced it, and that's what makes it funny, because he's playing it so serious, and Peter Sellers in that isn't he's playing it very comedy he's playing it very britishly if this was a modern movie if this was a movie made 20 years later tim curry would play that role mm-hmm. right couldn't you see tim curry playing mandrake where he's like hey it's a good choice yeah <laughs> the leg <laughs> snapped you see oh bugger <laughs> i loved mandrake in this he has that comedy sensibility i like it's very british very subdued but also very obviously funny with the classic Cap, uh, General Ripper's obviously going to kill himself. Yes. And he's just like, hey, come on, Jack, we'll get him together, I'll, I'll Jackie hold, boy. I'll hold that for you. Oh, you've dropped your gun. Oh, let's, let's play a game. Let's play a game, Jackie, <laughs> let's get him. And then he shoots himself. He's like, oh, Jack, how could you, Jack? And then, of course, he has a phone call, which I've already complimented. 
You have to uh, answer the Coca-Cola company. You have to answer the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> a sinister, it's a sinister thing that's said there. I love how it's played so straight. Mm-hmm. But I love Mandrake. Well, how do you feel about Mandrake and uh, this side of the story? Because obviously I would imagine your ranking of Peter Sellers' performances in this is different to mine. But uh, how do you feel about I, him? I think it might actually be similar to yours. Like I'm kind of stuck between the president and Mandrake myself because... While the president's phone calls with Dimitri are probably my favorite parts of the film, Mandrake's performance, like, pretty much at every point you see him is very consistent. It's ve- It stands out because he's the British guy surrounded by Americans <laughs> who is trying to lighten up the mood in every single interaction. Stiff upper lip. Stiff upper lip. Seriousness, and he's got to, you know, react to the craziest character of the film, the one responsible for everything. And it's just such a joy to watch. And then he has to react to the most stoic character in the film, the guy who comes in after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just, like, really stern. Bat guano, I think. Yeah, he's really stern. (laughs) He's really stern. Yeah, kind of dumb, but, like, you know, composed. Yeah, 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 and serious. Mm. He's scary, and he has a gun. And which makes the Coca-Cola stuff really funny. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It makes it really funny. And just... Also seeing Mandrake flex his military status over somebody who doesn't even care. Who doesn't even know what the wider plot is. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're just there to get rid of li- the phone. He's, he's literally just following orders. Like, look, I was told to shoot my way in and get this guy on the phone. I don't know anything else. And now he's dead. And you probably killed him because you're a prevert. Yeah, that was a weird line <laughs> delivery that was. I love uh, when he found the dead body, that guy, and he's just like, yeah, so he killed himself. While shaving, huh? <laughs> it added a real sinister tone to the scene because it's like, yeah, somebody would look at that and think that you killed him. Why would he kill himself while shaving? So odd. Well, I heard uh, literally this week at work there was a, there was a teacher who um, used to be an undertaker, and he said that most. Sorry, can we? Can we? Can we? Okay, can we back this up? Fifteen steps. Okay, I work at a school. <laughs> My name is Bartek. Or 1993. <laughs> Social security number, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know too much about his time as an undertaker, but he um, he's a maths teacher now. <laughs> oh, I would hope so. And he mentioned that the most common place for people to die is, like, in a toilet. So I assume that, like, like tertiary to that, you're, like, in a bathroom or a place where you would shave. So, you know, he killed himself while shaving. It's like, oh, that's common you know, mm. kind of effect going on. Mm. Yeah, but... Mandrake's great. He had, I love how his character evolves because he at first is very much Mr. Rules, Mr. I can't do this, Jack. I need those codes from you, Jack. Jack, give me the codes. I've got to do the right thing, Jack, to I'll feed you the bullets, Jack. Just please, please, Jack. I'm feeding you the bullets. I'm helping you kill our own men, Jack, to yes, they surrendered, Jack, but they're all good lads, Jack. They're all good lads. Look at me. I'm a good lad. And look at me. I drink water. I'm a water man, Jack. He's trying to fast talk his way back to, you know, <laughs> come on, work with me here. Normalcy of some yeah, sort. Yeah. Have you ever wondered why I drink uh, distilled or rainwater? Well, uh, like, you can see him looking around like, I don't really want to engage with this, but I have to. Was this also when, like, he had his arm around his shoulder? It's like, listen to me here, son. Like, I'm being a father to you now. <laughs> One of my favorite sequences with Mandrake is the, have you ever been a prisoner of war, Mandrake? Well, uh, uh, yeah, well, yes, actually, yes. And his whole backstory about him being a prisoner of war and the Japanese, uh, they didn't even really want information. They they kind of did it for fun, those blighters. 
<laughs> and Mandrake, you know, giving it an honest truth and the other guy's just too insane to recognize what's happening. He's just like, yeah, well, I don't think I could live up to the torture. And they'll break it out. He's like, oh, they, everyone, everyone gets that happens. Jack is like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to kill myself. I really like their back and forth. I love the comedic chemistry between the two because we all talk about Peter Sellers. Yeah. Or we all talk about George C. Scott. But the other players in the movie do a great job too, like uh, the Russian ambassador guy or General Ripper, because their comedy is far more straight. Mm. And you need that, or else this would be a totally absurdist film. And this film isn't going for absurdism in that way, because it's still striking a message about political structures and ideologies and the absurdity of war. Mm. And how much power world leaders have, and like if they make one accident, you know, it could all just go to shit. Yeah, or even how much the military has power, because if one insane general can do this, then fuck. Yeah, yeah. And, there, and there's always, like, goes back to this whole thing of, like, you know, we, you approve of this because of this reason, this reason, so that we can do this, and mm-hmm. all of that has been in play for this incident. Yeah, and apparently, read in trivia, that this movie incited that in real-world politics, they made sure that this could not be an actual outcome that one could do. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's funny. Mm. But, like, Ripper says it, right, where there's that quote from, I can't remember who he said it from, where, uh, uh, you know, war isn't ruled by generals, right? And he's like, well, now I've decided it is because yeah, politicians yeah. shouldn't have it. It's like, uh It's very much, yeah, soldiers first, politicians, you know, they don't know... They don't have the real stakes. They're not out there on the line. Yeah. Uh, you talked about how Metal Gear got inspired by Doctor Strange Love, but what about Babylon 5? Mm. <laughs> mm, because General Ripper is President Clark in Babylon 5, and which is this insane man who writes a secret code that they figure out so that they can that's turn true. off things. That's true. Yeah, that's right. Bodily fluids, peace on Earth. <laughs> mm. And it goes back to that whole conspiracy thing of, like, there's always, you know, a, a, a trail to follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then, of course, we got the war room. Gentlemen, no fighting in the war room. No there's room. no fighting here. This is the war room. <laughs> is the war room one of the greatest sets Ever? Because it's iconic. It's in black and white, but you instantly recognize what it is. Mm. I mean, we've got the big board. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, yeah, a lot you, of. You can't let him in here. Take pictures. Look, even of the big board. A lot of very, yeah, a lot of very simple lines like that. Just like there's the big board, and it's a board that's really big in front of a really big table, and just pointing out how big it is is just funny on its own. And he's protective of the board. Mm. That's what's really funny is. He's not as protective of all the secrets and the codes. It's the big board. <laughs> the big board, which, like, doesn't really have all that much information that feels like... Bartek, it- Bartek, it's big. It's big. And the Russian guy wants to take photos of it. <laughs> That's the funny part. He's right. He did want to take <laughs> yeah. photos of the big board. Even when the world's ending, he still wants to take photos of shit. I love that. Mm. The War Room, originally, you know, this film had lots of interesting behind-the-scenes stuff of... Things that you don't associate with Kubrick, because Kubrick's very meticulous. You think he knows everything he wants and everything's going to do. But this is one of those movies where they had a different ending originally. The film was originally going to be shot in color in some way. So they had things in color, like the the table in the war room is a giant poker table. And apparently, because this film's based on a short story or something like that, or a book, or a book 
Quite um, right a lot. Yeah, apparently the film was meant to be more of a drama, and Kubrick saw that like this would work better as a satire rather than a drama. Also, because the there was another film being made called Red Alert that actually had the license to the book and they were making a serious drama so it's like well we might as well make our film different as well is another factor and, and nobody remembers that film now only people remember this one I remember there was a lot of trivia about a pie scene that was cut yes the ending of the film was was them going to be getting into a hysterical fight and then it'll be like a custard pie throwing fight between like Russians and Americans yeah. something like yeah, that yeah yeah and you have stills of that there's images of the pie fight so yeah. you can see Peter Sells covered in custard yeah. pie there was a trivia point about how it's only ever been publicly shown once in like 1999 at a festival or something like Isn't that. that weird yeah and i remember because when i first watched this film i read the trivia for it and i always remember the pie thing and i seem to remember at the time like 2010 there was an extra trivia point about a line that gets said during the pie scene which is like really super on the nose <laughs> or something like that and it made me kind of roll my eyes but i couldn't find out what the line was today uh, with the war room mm-hmm. it's so iconic that basically every other war room equi- like war room thing, you have to attribute it to this because did you know famously Ronald Reagan, when he became president, he wanted to see the war room and they're like, We don't have a war room. He's like, What the fuck? I'm an actor, actor and I man. know of I'm, I'm <laughs> and he made them build a fucking war room <laughs> and stuff like that. The guy who also made the Star Wars program, like he liked movies, Reagan, that Reagan. Mm. He so, worked with a monkey, I know that. He worked with a monkey. Dunstan Checks in was the name, I think. Yeah, great film. Oh no, bedtime for Bongo. Yeah, bedtime for Bongo. Yep. Dunstan Checks in. That's a, a different, different film. <laughs> mistake. Uh, but 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 the war room, you've seen it in so many pieces of media. Like I said, The Simpsons has a war room episode. Remember where uh, Sideshow Bob has his bomb in the blimp that he's threatening to explode mm-hmm. and then they cut to the war room of Mayor Quimby and he's trying <laughs> to figure it out. It's been in our lives the whole time. This war room, it's the iconic. Like I think one of my favorite things about it is the big round desk, but above it is the big round light that's above it that just makes it really emphasize like it's a poker table. Mm. Even though it's in black and white and we may not be able to see that it looks like a poker table, you get that essence. Like, did you read that piece of trivia about it looking like it's a poker table? I didn't, no. Now, when I say that, do you get that? Yeah. yeah. Ooh, pardon me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and there are just so many men around it. Yeah, man. To the to the point that there are sometimes where you get the wide shot and someone's talking and like you have to really look at like okay who's animated who's talking right now. There was a moment where I think I've never really noted down before where George C. Scott's talking and I think it's the famous you know fifteen twenty million deaths tops and it's like a profile shot of him and you see the people around the desk. Doctor Strangelove is just sitting in the background there, <laughs> and it's like but it's cutting from George C. Scott with Peter Sellers in the background as Doctor Strangelove to. Peter Sellers as the president on the other side of the desk. And I'm like, this is so complicated. Because mm. in my recollection, Doctor Strange loves one of those characters that he appears when they call him. But he, he, if you really watch the film, he's always there. Mm. He's planted in the background, but they don't call attention to him until you get the famous calling attention to him. He's got the shadow and the lightning on his eyes and the De- cigarette. Definitely and- one of the things I forgot was that he's only in like five minutes of the film and only has like two scenes of dialogue and they're amazing scenes of dialogue. And, and it's basically here's a few minutes of you just talking <laughs> improvising yeah In- let's talk about the titular dr strangelove himself mm-hmm. is that one of the best comedic performances that is of it's so short <laughs> yet you think of it so iconically 
Yeah, of the th- of all the characters in the film, I was going to say just the Sellers ones, but of all the characters, he's got the... I almost want to say set design, but it's like the character design, the costume, the, hair, the, the, glasses. the look, the mannerisms, the... Accent. As much as all three Peter Sellers characters have accents, he's got the the really weird one. <laughs> sure. He's got the um the phantom hand syndrome, which that's another me- thing that Metal Gear later did. Oh yeah, Metal Gear Two, <laughs> Solid Two. Yeah, no, no, I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Metal Gear, Psychomantis. No, you're right. Metal Gear Solid Two with uh, Revolver Ocelot mm-hmm. faking that he is Liquid Snake attached to him. Well, at the he time, does at the time, it, at- but then it's revealed later <laughs> it's a fake. It's a fake. During that game, it was meant to be sincere. Was it, or was it all an elaborate lie? Ooh. By the time you get to four, then yeah. Yeah, it's bullshit. <laughs> uh, but Doctor Strange Love is the name of the movie for a start. It's just... Can you imagine this happening in a film today? Doctor Strange Love, that performance. That thing. Just this unexplained fucking weird thing comes in, and it's just an excuse to let the actor play. In a big film like this, could you imagine? So what I'm trying to imagine in my head is that somehow they've gotten someone to do this role and, you know, perfectly emulate the character and is prepared to do it. But I'm just thinking of filmmaking today, and I don't know that a film would linger on him for so long without cutting away to someone else to retort to... to... Or having him set up more and more in the film yeah, so that he's... when it happens... They really give this guy, like, if it was theatre, like a spotlight. It's your turn to do stuff now. He ends the movie. He does. But also, I just don't think film film viewer-wise, we, we would tolerate that as mm. much. Unless the film was overtly absurd. Yeah, de- definitely when I was watching, I'm like, oh, I, I didn't remember it being like this. Like, I remember the character, I remember the look, but I didn't remember the content. Mind Fura. <laughs> Like he's and yeah, he's fighting his hand. That's always what I remember is he's fighting his hand and he wants them to breathe and underground. He, he has a lot of he has a lot of layers going on to the point that I think I need to watch the film again just to get it all because like obviously he's an ex-Nazi, but he's still <laughs> the, the way he expresses himself. There's clearly like he still has some of those ideals there. Like his whole thing about underground breeding goes back to like Nazi eugenics. There's a whole mm-hmm. irony to the fact that like. He's still got his Nazi roots, yet he's a disabled man who the Nazis wouldn't tolerate. Just... I also think it's funny because it's almost like his Nazism is trapped within the hand. Mm. And that's the thing. <laughs> yes. Like his hand is like, I'm Naziing it up. And he's like, no, we can't do that here in the war room <laughs> yes. until later. And then like he gets to stand up and he's like, mind Vera. Mm. I can walk, which is the weirdest ending. Because <laughs> it's like, okay, now he can walk. Yet throughout the whole thing, he's like wiggling around in his chair. And But sometimes he does make really good points. Like at the end of his first scene, his line is like, nuclear deterrence doesn't work if you don't tell people that, you're, you, that you have this doomsday machine. Why didn't you tell anyone? Well, you know, the premier, he likes to keep a little surprise. It's like, oh, well, they, they should have known that I had a gun in my pocket to shoot them with. You know, it's like, well, you have to tell them you have the gun. Well, we're going to do it on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to do it on Monday, yeah. So many funny little absurd things like that. The, I mean... But it's played so straight that I think, like, a modern-day audience who walks into it blind, like, might have that go over their head. Until they really think about it. I think a part of the humour with him out of the three is it's the physical comedy of mm. him in the wheelchair and the hair, the hair and the, all of this. is the visual comedy, the physical comedy of him finding his arm and 
it's the it's the performance that you have to look away from your phone to look at. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, like uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, when his arm starts to pull the wheel on his wheelchair to make him kind of go off kilter, and he starts like whacking his arm, like hitting it. Mm. The Russian ambassador guy starts laughing, and then he quickly goes back into being serious because you're not supposed to be laughing. They, there was a lot of trivia points about how the the shots were multiple of them they were angled in specific ways to not show people laughing and like alexei the russian ambassador is like one of the ones who he couldn't still got in he still got in he's right there too in the center of the frame oh wow it's very funny but hey good on him he managed to maintain it well enough i don't know if i could (laughs) could you okay here's another thing could you imagine being an extra on that film, I mean, one, it's a Stanley Kubrick film. That's going to be a fucking weird experience being an extra where you have to do it 147 times. But could you imagine being an extra on that film where Peter Sellers just came up with that? And Kubrick's like, okay, you're going to share the frame with him. Serious face now. <laughs> Don't ruin this. While he's laughing behind the camera. <laughs> yes, it's it's corpsing. Yeah, it's corpsing. it's It's a bitch. It's a bitch. Especially yeah. if you're in a theatre performance, you just got to... Try not to corpse. Have you ever corpsed? I don't... You know, not in a theatre performance, but one of the last times I went to church, I corpsed. <laughs> and he died for our sins. There was, there was a woman who was, like, reading a passage from the Bible or something like that, and she... Her voice was just way too overly emotional, and I just couldn't help myself. I was just like... <laughs> <laughs> and then I just, like, got up very seriously, walked around the corner, and just, like, let it out a little bit. <laughs> you laughed at this woman's pain for Christ. How could you? Passion for Christ. No, I'm not watching that film. Not the film, but... <laughs> I beat you. I beat you there. Yeah, I, well, I knew it was going to happen after I said passion. So, Strange loved the character. He's not in the movie much. I also think that would piss off... That pits, pisses off people when you have a movie named after a character, and then the character's uh, you know, Oscar... You and the movie is not about that character per se. Well, that happens a lot. Like even when we did Tyrannosaurus, like oh, it's named after like one like little bit of the film where they talk Mm, about something. It's like, but it was very good. Yeah, (laughs) Doctor Strange Love is very very good. It's weird when you see color pictures of Doctor Strange Love. Ooh, yeah, because he's like got blonde hair Mm. and. Obviously he does, you would imagine. But like, I, in the black Doctor's- and white, I don't think of him. <laughs> the Doctor Strangelove in Metal Gear is all colour, so... <laughs> That's where he fucked up Kojima. <laughs> Why didn't he shoot in black and white? Uh, well, That's what some of, Kubrick would have done. Some of the Cold War era cutscenes have, like, you know, sepia or grayscale cutscene things going on. Not good enough. He should have shot it on film. <laughs> Polygons. Yeah. Um, Actually, the, the cutscene direction of the Peace Walker was, like, graphic novel style, so, yeah. Uh, well, that's fair. And then we have the president. I mean, that's... That's a good one. That I, I mean, I think Peter Sellers put most of his work into the president. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it's an artistically designed poster, but the poster is of the phone conversation. With you, the president. You know, you know the comedian Bob Newhart? I know the name, but I have He was to... in The Simpsons as himself at Krusty's funeral. He gave a eulogy where he didn't want to give it. They were like, hey, Bob, do you want to give a eulogy? He's like, I, 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 he's very nervous and a little sweaty man. He's like, I, I don't want to. No, I Yeah, don't. there was something like that. His son was in Heart and Souls, and he was a stand-up comedian performing as Bob Newhart in the background. And Bob Newhart... Oh, before they died, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why I bring this up is because Bob Newhart's famous comedy stand-up, and he still does this today. Bob Newhart's still alive, still does this. 
one-sided conversations and he famously is the one who always has the phone call conversations and that's what i thought of when i watched this of oh Bob i knew think... is famously the guy whose stand-up and comedy is the one-sided you conversation. know i think when i was looking up the, this film dr strange love on tv tropes i think they referred to that kind of phone conversation as like the new heart call or something like that yeah. there yeah. we go so, yeah I love it, but I do think of Bob Newhart because he's very—he's very good at that. Mm. He's very good. He has this one stand-up where I think it's him on the phone, and it's him in the tower of King Kong climbing the tower outside, <laughs> and he's trying to do a business call. <laughs> but he's having to explain that there's a giant ape outside. I gotta look this up. That sounds fun. <laughs> and there's another one where he's a driving instructor, but and he's like the person driving's crazy, but uh. I love the one-sided call conversations. Mm. I love that type of humor. We don't see that now either. Like, could you imagine that being in a James Franco comedy? Well, th- that's why I said earlier, like, that felt really scripted and meticulous, uh, going back to your whole notion that you've said many times over and always rings true that scripted comedies are a dying medium kind of yeah. thing. It all feels very improvised, and yet this is an improvised thing that kind of worked. It's kind Peter of funny. Sellers was a master comedian. Though. Yeah. Like he, he cut his teeth in several different fields of comedy, from radio comedy to TV to theater to film. He was a prick in real life, Peter Sellers. He sounds like a nightmare of a man, but a talented nightmare, let's just say. Okay, I, I heard that he was very stoic, and like he's only really funny when he's performing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's, I think... I can't remember. In the film, there's the film of his life where Jeffrey Rush plays Peter Sellers. Good casting. Oh, okay. He, uh, he, um, in that film, they uh, illustrate that he literally divorced and left his wife and family because he worked on a film with Sophia Loren and he fell in love with her. And he's like, I can't be married if I want to get with her. Mm-hmm. So, and Sophia Loren's like, who are you, weird little man? <laughs> I'm Sophia Loren, the most attractive woman in the world. And you're Peter Sellers, <laughs> the not most attractive man in the world. So, But he can become the performance. Yes, he can become. Like Jason Ironheart in Babylon 5, <laughs> he can fucking become. So I love the president. I love him because I remember when I first watched it, I didn't realize I was Peter Sellers. That's the one where he physically looks the most different. This was Yeah, for me, when I was watching the film, I'm like, okay, I think he plays Strange Love, the British guy, and the president. And when I saw the president, I'm like, is it Peter Sellers? Yeah. Because I'm so used, to, I was already so used to seeing, you know, the uh, Mandrake, mm. and I could see like, okay, yeah, that's Peter Sellers. I can see the Clouseau in him, and yeah, with the president, yeah. he's like this bald guy. He's doing a really good, like, regular American accent. He's stoic and stern and yeah. serious. He he just looks so different that like I I objectively knew it was him, but I like was convincing myself like, am I was I wrong? Did the, I the makeup and the demeanor because. Strange Love and Mandrake are very overtly silly characters, mm. while the president, his comedy comes from that he's so serious in a situation that's so serious, but it's also absurdities happening. The premier's drunk, you got George C. Scott being silly in front of him, and mm. I, one of my favorite lines is the whole uh, uh, the thing where he is going to be the man. I don't want to be the man who's remembered for being... <laughs> who's killed more people than Adolf Hitler. Yeah, the next greatest monster of the 20th century next to Adolf Hitler or something and like that. And then George C. Scott replying like, well, that's your problem, sir. You're not <laughs> thinking about the American people. You're just thinking about your legacy. <laughs> and it's also like a stealth way of describing what you know General D. Ripper is. Like, well, he's the one that made this happen, so he's the monster. 
Yeah, but then it's like, but if I then double down on that, yeah. then I'll be the guy. Because that was his, Shorty Scott's suggestion of strike, just strike and kill all of them. <laughs> I like reading the trivia point that um part of the performance that Peter Sellers did was emulating symptoms of cold yeah, for yeah, the yeah. president to make him seem a bit more weak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wimpy. I, I also liked, and maybe I have to think about the times, mm-hmm. but it didn't feel like Peter Sellers was doing an overt impression of an existing president. I think it was a candidate that he was doing an impression of. And that makes it feel more timeless in a way, because if he was doing a JFK, if he was doing a, or Lyndon like, B. Johnson or whoever was a known, around, yeah, a known yeah, president, it would take away from it a little bit. And I also like that the, 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 the premier of Russia, right? Mm. Was there a premier at the time who was Dimitri? I don't know who was the premier at the time. Was it not? Um, uh, Gorbachev? No, no Gorbachev was 80s. Uh, uh, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head. I, I have to play Metal Gear again. You have to ask your mum. She grew up in that time. She was born 68, so that was before. But, yeah. Oh, I'm sure they still had the same premiere. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. Probably true. Probably not. Who knows? They kill a lot of their people and replace them very easily. <laughs> That's right. I said it, Russia. What are you going to do? Come after me? Right they, here on the pod? They could. Oh, no. Oh, no. There's an umbrella. <laughs> then you shoot me in the leg with a Yeah, my, my of, umbrella uh, with the Polish colors. Yeah, well, that's how they get you. They <laughs> trick you. But, yeah, the president... I like it because, yeah, it's a performance that's skewering the politics, but it doesn't feel so wink-wink, which we are so familiar with in an age of Trump's existence. How many political comedies have fallen on their face just because of that existence? Yeah, it's so like on the nose and so blunt force and stupid, and you just go, okay, we get it, guys. I'm bad. When he won the presidency, a lot of the people on like late night were like talking about how people would come to this, like, oh man, the next four years is going to be easy. It's all going to ride itself. And they were like, no, it's going to be really redundant because we're going to be repeating ourselves a lot. Yeah. And then once the presidency was over, it was like, yeah, that was the case. Yeah. Yeah. And also, they just didn't really have anything clever to say. Mm. <laughs> it was, they just had to work on their impression. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. Or have him on. <laughs> and let him be the joke in himself. Mm. Yeah, well, here, this is the height of the Cold War, right? Yes. This is made the height of the fear, and it's incredibly funny. And it seems like people got that it was funny at the time. But it seems like when you were talking about that first time viewing with yourself, you, you mentioned, like, this time you're laughing a lot more throughout. So. Mm-hmm. Did you kind of just not gather the humor of it as much that first time round? And if so, what do you think? Yeah, it's, back? it's hard to remember what Year 11 Bartek was thinking, but um, I guess I recognize that it was funny. Like, obviously, we have General D. Ripper talking about bodily fluids and the essence of sex or whatever it was. Fluidated water. Fluidated water. And, like, I, ju- I think I just recently learned what fluoride was. I'm like, isn't that a good thing? Like, it helps your teeth and stuff? Yeah, my hometown didn't have fluoridated water oh shit How are and my water <laughs> bad and my water tastes like chicken so oh well, that's usually a compliment but not for water <laughs> not for water <laughs> not for water oh rural australia to the winning oh, i'm so sorry everyone from ryan's hometown <laughs> well no because my bodily fluids are sacred and pure <laughs> except for i've eaten baby food in my life or whatever else he said in that list mm. um yeah i, I guess well, like I said, yeah, a few days afterwards, I was thinking back and I was like, that was actually really good, really funny stuff. And I did enjoy it. It was just, I guess, 
I guess it goes back to what I was saying before about like modern audience maybe walking in with false expectations. Like I walked in being like, oh, Kojima said to watch this. Like I didn't really know much about the context. And when I told some friends about it at school, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, we're doing Cold War in history and we actually watched that film too. So like they would have watched it with more like historical context in mind. Whereas for me, it was like, oh, I know Metal Gear. And so there were like little references I was catching rather than the greater picture. Did on upon that first watch and this watch, did the the shadow of the filmmaker loom over it as well? Because again, you don't think of Kubrick as a comedy filmmaker. He's the Mr. Serious Brooding. I'm the genius filmmaker. I did The Shining and Full Metal Jacket, and those have funny things in them, but they're not comedies. I think for me at the time, I don't know which Kubrick films I would have watched, but definitely since it would have been like a known name. Oh, your mum didn't raise you on them? They're the movie fan. Your mum didn't say, Young Bartek. What was, <laughs> what's your little kidsy name your mum would give you? That's like Bartush. Your Bartush. <laughs> which one's the one where they call, which animal were you called? Uh, Zapka, frog. Frog, your little frog. Here, froggy, a clockwork orange. <laughs> <laughs> uh, She's definitely seen some Kubrick films, but I don't think she showed me any. Such a shame. Mm. Such a shame. She should have put you on her lap and was like, here, Bartek, here, Bartek. It's Barry Lyndon, <laughs> three-hour movie. She likes Jack Nicholson. I'm sure she's seen The Shining. So. The Shinnin. Oh, yeah. The Shinnin. <laughs> the Shinnin. Because I will admit, it had loomed large for me when I first watched it. I'm like, I'm not expecting this to be as funny as it is because comedy filmmakers make comedy, not serious filmmakers. And if they do, they're very smart, highbrow. Oh, look at me. I'm Noah Baumbach. Ooh. And no, it's like, no, this is just funny. You got Peter Sellers. He's a comedy legend at the time. And you get what you get. It's, but it's incredibly smart. We've got lots of themes about war, bureaucracy, nuclear deterrence, the Russian, you know, the fear of the Russians, the fear of the others. The, the role of leadership. Role of leadership, uh, sanity, all of that great, great stuff in there. The futility of man. Mm, patriotism versus reality. Nihilism. Yeah. <laughs> Communism. Communism, existentialism, liberalism, or whatever, all isms, tism. Uh, and it's a very political film. Yeah, it's still very funny. Yeah. I find like a lot of political films that are also trying to be funny don't often succeed mm. at that. And I think it still ties back to and now this is a tired plot device but the doomsday machine plot it's just a good plot mm. it's a good it's a good piece of tension i feel like when you have something like doomsday machine it seems a lot more like something you'd hear in a superhero film or a lot more of an actiony film whereas this is a yeah, sci-fi film or a sci-fi film whereas this is like dark comedy political satire so it's uh, very different from you know, the kind of film that you'd think of today with a doomsday machine or something with a similar name. And now we've made our own doomsday machines. Mm. You got a doomsday machine and you got a doomsday <laughs> machine. It's like, I wonder if this, how different this film would have been if it was still made at the same time, still the same film, but instead of a doomsday machine, it was a Metal Gear. I think a part of the success of the movie is also the dedication they put in behind the scenes because it's Kubrick and co. They don't half-ass it. So a piece of the trivia, again, I always remember is... They got in a lot of fucking shit for how detailed that cockpit was. 
Yeah, that's right. And they're like, how did you fucking know that? Because we didn't give you anything. And it was like, they only ever found one photo because like they yeah. were being denied all these resources. They managed you, to scavenge one photo. Do you, no, no. Do you remember where I, I can't remember if they found, I know where they got it. And uh, in my recollection, it was a cover, an illustrated cover on a book. Yeah, I thought it was like a magazine or something. A magazine or a book. And they just copied that. Yeah, and then they showed it to, like, real B-52 crew members, and they're like, how how the fuck did you get that? One-to-one, this is perfect. How did you get that? You're not allowed to have that. (laughs) You're not allowed to have that. You can't do this. That level of effort, or or the aerial photography, and they accidentally found a secret American military base that had to (laughs) put them down and demand what they were doing. And they thought they were Russian spies. Could you imagine... James Franco comedy doing that? <laughs> no, no. The worst they could do is make Kim Jong-un shit his pants over the fact they got someone to impersonate him. Remember that? I think I'm just going to remember from this episode the whole idea of, like, James Franco version of this film. <laughs> <laughs> like, him having to deal with the American base and <laughs> reading 50 books about nuclear weapons. And smoking a big fat joint and, and, and sexting an underage girl. Yeah. Yeah. James Franco. Man of credibility. Oscar nominated or winning actor James Franco? He won a Golden Globe. But he got Oscar nominated for 127 Hours. Right? Oh, that's right. Yes. The man who cut off his own arm. Yeah. I've never seen that film. I have. Is it good? It's good. Is he good? Yeah. Is he Oscar worthy? Yeah, I mean, it's like a one man show kind of film. Yeah, Danny Boyle, filmmaker one man show. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love you, you. They just put so much fucking effort into it. Mm. And yeah, the ending's different to what they originally intended, but the ending is perfect. The one that they do have. The we'll meet again while nuclear explosions that are ending the world is happening and it's this beautiful song. <laughs> and even before that, when um it's one of the like second last scene that we see George C. Scott in where like uh. he's getting really patriotic and like enthusiastic about how great the pilots are and then And he falls down and gets <laughs> back up. <laughs> and then at the end when he's like, Oh well do you think they'll succeed? It's like, hell yeah and then he realizes, Oh, oh no. wait, th- that'll kill me and everyone in the world. Mm, but they're very good though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we should talk about George C. Scott. Are you familiar with him as an actor? I looked up his filmography and I think I think this is the only thing I've seen him in, but I know the name. I feel like I've heard it a million times. He's a great actor. Mm. Apparently he was 35 in this film. Yeah, how does it make you feel? He looks like he's 52. He's seven years older than mm. us in this film. <laughs> so you're saying I could play this role in seven years' time? Yeah. Oh, good. Even though you look like Vern Troyer, apparently, but... <laughs> no, John... John, uh, John, John Leguizamo. Or uh, what was the other one? Luis Guzman. Luis Guzman. <laughs> All of them. And Judy Dench. What you're saying? You're saying Luis Guzman can't play this role. Don't do typecast him. He can. He can get a non-white person to play this role. They had one non-white person in this film. Yeah, James Earl Jones. Yeah, James Earl Jones, and uh, that was it. We can it? easily copy that today. Just get one. You know, <laughs> or maybe okay, oh, we're a bit more woke today. To get two. No, 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 idiot! You dumb idiot! What are you stupid? You you fucking idiot! You're dumb, aren't you? You Tyler Perry to remake this fucking movie, and he plays all of the characters <laughs> in different outfits. <laughs> Duh! What are you stupid? This is we're talking. Uh, Jade Franco may get a cameo in his version. Okay? I, I, I see. I see the point you're making, but that's still only getting one person. <laughs> you're right. You'll get a sexy woman <laughs> to be the w- woman of the film. Yeah, to be the singular woman of the movie. Who's in her bikini? She was like a playboy person. Well, yeah. You know that because it's set up in the movie because 
on the plane, they're reading Playboy, and I think it's a picture of her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is cute. That was a cute detail. I, I, I mentioned that I liked her phone call, too. There was just that very funny thing of, like, oh, she's having a serious conversation. Then it's like, oh, I actually know you. Oh, Freddy, hey. hey. And then every time he says, pass this message on, she rewords it in her own way that, like, mm. gives it a different feel. Like, that was really funny. George C. Scott's great. He's a, he's a He was a great actor. Like, legitimately one of the greats. And it's very fun to see him in an overt comedy because... He could be very funny in his movies because of how angry he would be. He is in a a great film called Exorcist Mm Three Legion, where him and Brad Dorif have to face off against Chucky himself. Brad Dorif have to face off against each other. It's very good. He plays. uh, You ever seen The Exorcist, the original? No, I haven't. Ah, he plays. A character that was in that. Are, film. are you saying that the Chucky dolls in the film, or the actor plays the actor? Okay, you know, brother Edward from Babylon Five. There you go. <laughs> now you understand. Did Brad Dorf play Chucky? Yeah. Okay, I've never seen the film, so I didn't know that. So in the first, oh, what is this? <laughs> in the first Chucky movie, Chucky is a real person. Yeah, and, and get- he's a, he does voodoo curse on a doll. Yeah, and, and then he voices the doll. But yes, Brad Dorf was a real person in the Chucky movies. Then he does the voice. You know, he's Billy in uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Um, so I love George C. Scott in Exorcist 3 because he's, uh, this really angry, tired policeman who's having to deal with paranormal events and he's like, fuck me. And he's just so angry throughout the movie (laughs) and it's wonderful. He's good. It's an underrated film. It has problems, but he's really good in it. And there's this other film, I'm forgetting the name of it off the top of my head. I feel bad. Where the pitch of the movie, from my recollection, is he watch? It has a famous scene where he watches a film and he starts breaking down because it's the movie is he finds out his daughter is a porno actress mm. and he's watching a film of her at a porno. It's just him in the cinema being like sweating and rubbing his hand on his face and he just goes, "Turn it off, <laughs> turn it off." Oh, if only, <laughs> if only he had the desperado experience of like his daughter takes him out of the cinema for that scene. Turn it off. <laughs> God damn it, Dad Patton, the classic. Uh, and he's been in numerous things, but he was very good. And I loved him here. I loved when he would smack his belly in this movie to <laughs> emphasize a point. It made me laugh a lot. It made me laugh that this was him being tricked. But also, like, that's something so weird to think about. That this isn't the actor's consenting performance. This is mm. a tricked performance, and yet it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> It's so lively. Can you imagine Jane Franco doing this to Seth? (laughs) (laughs) James, you tricked me. (laughs) It's one of my favorites, though. (laughs) 20 20 million deaths. (laughs) I'm Pumba. Earlier when I was talking about how, you know, this isn't like a comedy from today, I was one second away from comparing it to Pineapple Express. But now that you brought in Seth Rogen. (laughs) Now Seth's in here. It's 40-year-old virgin. Ah, Sethy boy. Anything else you want to say about Doctor Strange Love? Other than his real name <laughs> isn't Doctor Strange Love. He he changed it when he came in American Citizen. Yeah. Oh god. If I say no, that's it. I'm gonna kick myself later because there'd be something You're I'm forgetting. You're gonna kick yourself the the fact that we didn't talk about the big board enough. <laughs> the, big the, board, big, the big need, board. I think we need to talk about the big table more. It's pr- it's a really big table. Yeah, it's pretty big. It's pretty. They you, fought, can f- you can fit a lot of pies on that. They fought in the war room. Classic line. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. This is war room, gentlemen. I like that that fight hap- like started off screen. <laughs> <laughs> 
I like that George C. Scott was right. <laughs> it's like as soon as we see the war room, that's really where the film's comedy is like really present. Although, when we first meet George C. Scott in his house of mirrors, <laughs> whatever the fuck Yeah, that, that was, was like mixed between like a green room and a bedroom. It looked like a tanning room. Yeah, because that's what the- Because li- that's what she's doing. Yeah, that, that's what the- seemed like, because she's in a bikini and, like, the lights on her. Such a- because it's in black and white, it's even harder to gauge what this is supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't think of much else, other than it's just a good movie. And mm. for a Kubrick film, it's light-hearted and fun, even though it's still bleak, and still lots of behind-the-scenes shenanigans going on. But overall, it seems like he wanted to have fun, and he made a fun movie. If he was still alive- and was still making movies, do you think he would have made more comedies? Or do you think this was like, he got it out of his system and this was it? Because he doesn't have any others in his catalogue of work that are just just comedies. I don't know. I mean, 2001 Eyes, was really funny. Eyes Wide Shut was really funny. Tom Cruise trying to act. I had a good laugh at that. Oh, man, if they made Eyes Wide Shut today but cast Seth Rogen and Catherine Heigl. Come on, you have to say James Franco. It's been the joke of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> James Franco will be the head of the sex cult. <laughs> Um, AI would certainly be a different film. <laughs> yeah, with Jane Franco as a little boy. <laughs> and Seth Rogen as the mum. Can you imagine that scene? The one where she abandons him in the woods, but it's Seth Rogen and Jane Franco. You have to stay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll fucking stay here. I love you. You're my bro. Are we bros? <laughs> <laughs> and then Judd Apatow lets that run for 20 minutes too long <laughs> that's and it's the there. same music that's in the version that we have now oh, yeah, yeah it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't change the cinematography is the same everything's the same except the length except the length it's much longer <laughs> it's much much longer <laughs> and more pot jokes like you know how that area is kind of foggy yeah. it's because they're gonna bomb <laughs> <laughs> it's it's their it's their well known uh, smoking spot you're gonna be really disappointed because my recommendation is not a Jen Franco movie but I feel like I really should have picked one huh that's okay. Uh, we don't have to base it on... Spider-Man 2. <laughs> James Franco's best role. Oh, well, no, Spider-Man 3. Real question. Is there a James Franco comedy you like? Um, I mean, I've generally enjoyed all of them. Never to the point that it's like, oh, it's the best ever. I mean, I, I yeah. Like? I mean, I, I had a good time with Pineapple Express. I don't know how I'd feel about them today, but at the time, you know, it was just All like, right. oh, it's well, the podcast comedy. is over, but I just gave James Franco a pass. Green Hornet. Oh, the what? James Franco, James. Whoa. <laughs> Bonus, it has Seth Rogen, and he's in it more. <laughs> Whoa. That's it. It has David Harbour without a beard, and he gets run over by a car and out has, of the building. And it has some German guy who just needs to get out of the frame and let James Franco be. Yeah, Werner Herzog. <laughs> uh, I think that's it for Doctor Strange Love. Yeah, you recommend it? I do. It's uh, yeah, it's really good. And I feel like even if you have a similar first experience to it that I did, you know, keep thinking about it. There's a lot of things to appreciate, and you know, look forward to when you revisit. I don't recommend it. Didn't have James Franco in it. Really disappointed. When I watched this film, I was expecting the Franco. Oh, Dave! Where was Dave Franco? Huh? I don't know too many tropes about Dave Franco. Is he also a stoner? 
I mean, he smiles like James Franco, but he's got shorter hair. You saw the the Room movie that they made, Disasterized, yeah. it was called? Yeah, but that's one film I've seen. I've seen James Franco in a lot of films. Have you seen 21 Jump Street? Yeah. Dave Franco was in it. Wow. He was Mr. Hey, we had a friendship bracelet and everything. You ruined it. Do you don't remember that? He's like the lead antagonist in that movie. Yeah, well, yeah that was something like so that. So you know what? Next week, I was going to pick a fun film. Well, we're doing 22 Jump Street just instead. <laughs> no, uh, I recommend Doctor Strange Love. Of course I do. Uh, my recommendation, though, for next week is not Doctor Strange Love again. It's Doctor Strange. Let that one sink in, people. We went the whole episode without mentioning it. And then Bartok had to do it. You know, I didn't even think... He had to do it. I didn't even think of it until last night where I tried Googling... Like, I was Mm -hmm. Googling without looking at the screens, like, typing with just my left hand. It's like, oh, autocorrect, yeah, Doctor Strange Love. His right hand was busy. And then then I looked away, and then I looked back, I'm like, I didn't Google Doctor Strange. I didn't even (laughs) think of that. (laughs) You pressed, I'm feeling lucky, which nobody does. (laughs) Why am I on the Wikipedia page for Doctor Strange? I want Doctor Strange Love. Why am I on the Polish one? (laughs) (laughs) My recommendation for next episode is an iconic film, one that's close to our hearts, mm-hmm. one that is going to be close to everybody's heart after we recommend it, because everybody at home is going to sit down and watch this movie. Why are you looking so afraid, Bartek? <laughs> no, I'm just trying to hide my laughter because I don't know what's coming, but I know I'm going to laugh when I hear the name. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got a few names mm-hmm. to give you a clue. Well, this one, the film we just did had two, apparently. <laughs> well, this one has like 14 names. So we're going to be doing a little film called Dinner for Adele. Ooh. Or, or more commonly referred to, Adele hasn't had her supper yet. So this is. Or f- Adele hasn't eaten dinner yet. It's a Czechoslovakian film. Mm-hmm. You can find it easily under Dinner for Adele or Adela hasn't had her supper yet. One of those who will guide you along. We'll be talking about that because I feel like we've left Lemonade Joe long enough in which people can reel in from the joy of that and be able to fully embrace the next Czech joy. So we've both seen this film once together Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we've been looking forward to revisiting it. So we're finally going to do it for the podcast. Yeah, and Bartek and I will get to have a fun conversation after this episode on how he is going to watch this movie. (laughs) Uh, Considering I have the DVD copy Ryan has the DVD, yeah. The foreign DVD region copy that I cannot give you unless we do it in a complicated manner. Yeah. But that is it. So dinner for Adele or Adela hasn't had her supper yet. A beautiful film. Emotional, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. It has a cat in it. There's really good use of a specific type of pillow. And it has a cat in it. Do you remember the cat? I remember a very small person. <laughs> you don't remember? Well, we'll talk about it next episode. There was a cat, wasn't there? There was a woman and a cat and a woman <laughs> dressed like a cat. <laughs> Her name was Winifred in Lemonade Joe. So we'll be talking about that next time. So look forward to it. You can find us on the social medias of Facebook and Twitter, Spit and Polish Presents. You can find us on all of the podcatching sites as well as YouTube. You can subscribe to us on there. I think we're up to a ludicrous amount of subscribers, which I find very funny. Yeah, especially considering the double digits of views we get in most things. (laughs) Yes, so that's fine. Hey, we got millions of views 
for Baby's Day Out. Have we hit the two million mark yet? I don't know. I haven't looked in a while. I've, every time I've checked, it's like we're almost it with, there. If we combine it with others, we have millions of views. Oh, if we combine it with just the boy next door, then we got like over two Everybody's million. clamoring for J-Lo action, and then they're <laughs> annoyed that two dingus heads are talking. Well, it's actually three in that episode. Get your facts straight, comment yeah. section. Hey, so we're on there, and you can email us at spitandpolished at gmail.com. You can suggest a suggest you can suggest a movie to us on the email or on the social medias. We are always gathering suggestions from our listening people. Last time it was my parents. We didn't even talk about how last week we did a military movie made by the military, like sponsored by the yeah, military. That's right. And then we did one this week, which was having to stress that the military don't support this. Yeah, because they saw the script and I'm like, no. No, and then the opening was like, this doesn't happen. This isn't real. Fuck you, <laughs> Kubrick. Very different. A decade does a lot, doesn't it? A yeah. decade and a Vietnam War does a lot. You're right. Difference. Yeah, it wasn't even a full. It was like nine. No, mm-hmm. 10 years. Yeah, you're right. It was a decade. So that's all I got to say for you, Dimitri. 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 I feel like we didn't talk about that enough in the episode, if anything. No, we did. We, I mean, what is it to say other than it's really funny? It's just really funny, man. <laughs> it Dimitri's is. Dimitri's this drunken Russian who's got music up too loud. I like one of my favorite little jokes. I don't know why. It just makes me crack up where, where Peter Sellers goes, uh, Dimitri, sorry, you faded away a bit there, Dimitri. <laughs> This is a weird little touch. I guess, yeah, all of the references we had to the one-sided phone conversation and the... The characterization of the person on the other end was all Peter Sellers, and it was like the comedic highlight of the film. Yeah, but you're the comedic highlight of my film, Spit and Polish Presents, in which, who do we say was you? Oh, Jack Black and Zach Galifianakis. They really nail it. Yeah, it's a dual I, role. I, I think I should be played by Chris Pratt, because he's doing everyone these days. <laughs> he's fucking <laughs> Garfield! When you mentioned earlier who we're going to cast, that was what I was thinking. I'm like, nah, it's too obvious. It's too obvious it's going to date the show as 2021 humour. Mm. Well, we're very much 2019 humour. Mm. I think my Luis Guzman joke was more 2008 humour. I don't know. <laughs> no. He's timeless. <laughs> I was just trying to think of what have we had him on. It's like, oh, old dogs. And I wasn't even there for old dogs. Yeah, you weren't. And that was the film you really wanted to do. Let's do old dogs. Okay, guys. Old dogs next week. Bye. <laughs>